0: If you have your Bible, I'm going to ask you to go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 13. You don't have to stand yet because we're going to talk about some things first. While you're turning there, I just want to say thank you to Paul for allowing me to preach here and uh, just how much I respect your pastor and how big a deal it was for me and my family to start coming to this church instead of the one everybody thinks we should go to uh, the reason we're here is because I know that your pastor feels a severity as he stands up here. He's preached to you every Sunday, and I know that he, he trusts the word of God. So I want, to know, want you to know I'm coming to you with that same severity. I believe that God has a word for us here. I don't want you to think these are my words or that these are words I've gotten from someone else. I believe this is really what Jesus is saying to us in these parables we're going to look at today. So I want you to pay close attention, and as Jesus would say to those who are hearing him, Pay careful attention to how you hear. And as we approach this passage today, I want to mention these things by way of introduction so we can get in the right mindset where we need to be to understand. The first thing I want us to remember as we come to these parables is the purpose of parables. Namely, parables have a twofold purpose. The first purpose of a parable is to reveal something to the chosen. The second purpose of a parable is to make things mysterious or to hide things from those who are not chosen Jesus makes this clear in Matthew chapter 11 verse 25 it says at that time Jesus declared I thank you father Lord of heaven and earth that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to the little children yes father for such was your gracious will so there's a twofold purpose very explicit very intentional very active purpose on the behalf of God he's revealing something to some people and hiding it from others To see something even more in our immediate context in in Matthew chapter 13, where we've been for a while, um, in verse 11, the disciples are asking Jesus, why are you speaking to the people in parables? You know, if you're really the son of God, and this comes up over and over in Jesus' ministry, if you're really the Messiah, just tell people, why are you speaking to them in parables? And he answered to them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. So keep this in mind as we read. There's a purpose behind the story. Jesus isn't just telling a story, hoping that everybody who can understand will, and if you can't, maybe somebody will help you. He tells the story with the purpose of his people will understand. Those who are not his people will not understand. Second thing, these parables that we're going to look at today are about the kingdom of heaven. What is the kingdom of heaven? It's going to be a long definition. It took me a long time to come up with it but I'm going to say it about 25 times today. So if you don't get anything when you leave, I want you to be able to say, this is what the kingdom of heaven is. Presently, the kingdom of heaven is the sovereign, redemptive rule and reign of God through Christ, by the Holy Spirit, in the hearts of His people, for His own glory and purposes. It's the present kingdom. The future kingdom will finally one day be the absolute reign of God over all things which he has made righteously perfect by his justice and holiness, and in which all things are perfectly displaying the glory of God through and in Jesus Christ for all eternity. And next Sunday, I want everybody to have that memorized. (laughs) But that's important for us to know, because he's going to talk about the kingdom of heaven. So what I want us to do, set aside our presuppositions about what we think the kingdom of heaven is, or what we've been raised that the kingdom of heaven is, and look at the scriptures and see what the kingdom is really is, and that's what we've been going through, Matthew chapter 13, an analyzing and finding a definition of what the kingdom of heaven really is. Also, when we think about the kingdom, we need to remember that it is a twofold kingdom. Just like the purpose of parables are twofold, the kingdom is twofold. It's already, and it is not yet. That's the reason for it having two definitions. So the kingdom was inaugurated at Jesus' first coming, and it be completed and consummated at his second coming. So, we see the purpose of parables in general, the definition of the kingdom. So, what's the purpose of this particular parable or this passage with two parables that we're going to look at? What's the purpose? Just like the rest of them we've looked at, Jesus is trying to correct Jewish misunderstandings about the kingdom. We've seen over and over again the Jews expected this sudden kingdom. Even after Jesus was resurrected and the disciples kind of understood what the kingdom was, they look at Jesus and they say, Are you now going to set up the kingdom? They said, okay, you've done it. Now here's the kingdom. Where's the kingdom? So Jesus is going to teach us something from this parable about the kingdom to correct our misunderstanding. In Luke chapter 17, even the Pharisees come to Jesus and it says, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. This is really, really significant to what we're going to talk about today. So just like the Jews had an expectation of a kingdom that would come at once, I think we also have unbiblical kingdom expectations. So we're going to look at this today and see what Jesus has told us. the last part I want us to see before we get into these parables is what we have seen so far in Matthew chapter 13. We've seen Jesus address responses to the kingdom. Sower goes out to sow, and as he sows his seed, some seed falls along the path, some seed falls along the thorn, some seed falls in the rocky soil. Some seed lands on good soil. So Jesus says that the nature of those who will respond to the kingdom doesn't depend on them. It depends on the type of soil they are. So who makes the soil? God makes the soil. This parable is telling us no matter how much you want to be part of the kingdom, if you're not good soil, you're not going to hear. You're going to go away and you're not going to hear. Second thing, what we've been looking at the past three weeks is Jesus shows us the reality of a twofold kingdom. He says, the sons of the evil one and the sons of the kingdom are growing up together. And there isn't a time before the end, the harvest time, where the reapers go out and separate them. That's not going to happen. That will happen at the end of the age. The righteous and the wicked will be separated. That's the end of the age. And then the eternal kingdom will come to fruition. So we get here, in other words, if you notice in verse 31, before we look at these parables, it says, he put another parable before them. So Jesus is speaking to the same people. He's told them these things, the nature of the kingdom hearers, the nature of the twofold kingdom. So we get to this point and we're like, okay, Jesus, the kingdom is twofold. The kingdom citizens depend on your choosing, not ours. The kingdom is not coming with signs to be observed. So how are we supposed to know what it looks like? The kingdom is now, but it's going, to be, it's going to come later. How do we know what it's going to look like in the middle? How does it grow? And what hope can we place in a kingdom that we can't see? If Jesus would look at you and say, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, you're like, okay, where? And he would say, it's not coming with signs to be observed. What does that mean, Jesus? So I think today in these parables, Jesus is going to reveal something to us about the nature of the kingdom that's still left in mystery so far. And if you want to stand with me as we read this part of of our message today, and then we'll pray, we'll see what the Spirit has for us. Starting in verse 31, it says, He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come to you knowing that we are inadequate to look at your word and understand on our own. But we also come with the promise that Jesus said that he would not leave us as orphans, but that he would send a comforter, even the Holy Spirit who would be sent in his name by your power to lead and guide us into the truth and to bring to our remembrance the things that you have spoken. So we cast ourselves on your spirit today to show us what you're trying to teach us through these parables. And we just pray that your spirit would be among us, that it would be on me as I speak, that it would be on all of us as we hear what you are speaking to us. And we pray above all else that you would be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we see these parables here, and there's going to be three ways that we look at them today. The first way we're going to look at them, the first way is observatory. What all can we see? The second way is interpretive. What does it mean? And the third way is applicable. What does it mean to us? Or what truths does it hold to us? for us. And something on a side note here, when you're studying the scriptures on your own, this is how you approach every passage. What's there? What can I see? What's being said? And then what does it mean? Who's speaking? Who are they speaking to? What was going on during that time? What's being addressed? What is the theological truth here that applies for all generations? Because that's the way we cross that bridge and apply it to ourselves. So that's what we're going to do today. The first observation in this parable, like the parables that we've seen before in this chapter, is that this parable is about the kingdom of God. Second time I'm going to say this. Remember, the kingdom of God can be defined as the sovereign, redemptive rule and reign of God through Christ, by the Holy Spirit, in the hearts of his people for his own glory and purposes. And finally, one day it will be the absolute reign of God over all things, which he has made righteously perfect by his justice and holiness and in which all things are perfectly displaying the glory of God through and in Jesus Christ for all eternity. Now, the reason that big definition is important, every aspect of that definition holds a theological truth for us. I could preach 15 messages on that definition. Paul didn't give me that liberty, so we're, that's all you got today. I'll read it a bunch of times, and you can chew on it for a while. But the reason it's important for these parables is to give us the right focus, because the focus is not the mustard seed. The focus is not the woman. The focus is not the man. The focus is not the leaven, the trees, or the birds. The focus is the kingdom. And if we don't make that the focus, then we're going to make some error as we try to understand it. Second observation. These parables are analogies or similitudes. In essence, they're comparing two things to another. We know this because it states plainly, the kingdom of heaven is like. It says that for both of these parables, This is going to be important when we go through to see what this parable means. Question I want to ask here, as Christy pointed out yesterday, from the time I've been a baby, I asked why, about everything. Why is Jesus speaking in an analogy? Analogies are very useful for problem solving. We have a problem here because the Jews are like, okay, you're saying all this stuff about the kingdom that we've never heard before. Why? So instead of Jesus just saying, okay, the kingdom's going to come, in two revelations, I'm coming here to set up the kingdom now, and then it's going to come this way. There's going to be common people out here who don't have any idea what he's saying. They say, I'm going to tell you what the kingdom of heaven is like. And he gives us an analogy. The reason this is important, because people are starting to recognize Jesus as Messiah. Some people were. He had a small following. John 3, Nicodemus, one of the Pharisees, even comes to him and says, hey, we know you come from God because nobody can do the things you're doing unless God be with him. One of the Pharisees is recognizing that. John chapter 7, Jesus goes up to the feast, and the people are saying, do the Pharisees know that this guy's the Messiah? So people are starting to question. So Jesus addresses their questions and their problems with analogies, just like we've seen this whole chapter. This whole chapter is full of that, and that's the purpose of a parable, to help us solve these problems. Next thing we're going to observe. The point of this parable is to reveal a mystery of the kingdom, not to spiritualize or allegorize every aspect of of this parable or these parables. If you'll notice, for the first time here so far, Jesus doesn't give an exposition of this parable. Every parable we looked at in Matthew 13, Jesus told us what it meant. Makes it really easy for guys like me to stand up here and preach and tell you what it means because Jesus already told us. This one, Jesus doesn't do that. I think there's a reason for it because it's understandingly simple. The point is simple. Our goal here today is not to over-spiritualize what the seeds are and and what the sower is and what the leaven means. That's not the goal here today. Jesus has been the one sowing in the parables before, but Jesus is not the one sowing here. If we want to draw that conclusion, then we have to infer that Jesus is also the woman in the parable of the leaven. And I don't think any of us would be willing to say that. Some people, as I was preparing for this sermon, some people go so far as to allegorize the birds coming to nest in the branches of this tree. They try to point it back to the Old Testament. The language may be the same, but that meaning is not explicit here. And once we start trying to proof text and connect text here and there, we miss the point. Now, as we're going to see, the point is the growth of the kingdom that will include all nations, so that symbolism is possible, but it's not necessary here. And so we don't ever want to isagite or put our meaning into the text trying to find out what we want it to mean. We want to see what Jesus wants it to mean. There's also no significance here to the three measures of meal. It doesn't matter that Abraham asked Sarah to prepare three measures of meal when Jesus and two angels came to see him before they destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. That means nothing here. That's not the point. It doesn't say the kingdom of heaven is like measures of meal. Not what it says. The purpose here is what Jesus said it is, and he's going to tell us specifically. One other observation we can make about that is the point is not that leaven is evil. People say, oh, well, leaven's evil all throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, God told them not to offer leaven with their sacrifices. The New Testament in Matthew 16, Mark 8, Luke 12, Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and, and Herod. So leaven has to be evil here. So what this means is the evil that's going to be rising up in the church not here anywhere. That's not what the Bible means about leaven. Jesus does say, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But if you notice, he doesn't just say, beware of leaven. If Jesus said, beware of leaven, okay, all leaven's bad. Stay away from it. But he classifies it. And he goes so far as to tell us. It's hypocrisy in Matthew and in Mark and Luke. He says, this is the teaching of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and Herod. So here, what we have, like I said, an analogy, a comparison. And this is why he speaks about leaven. Galatians 5, and it's coming from the Old Testament, the Apostle Paul says a little leaven, leaven's a whole lump. The purpose here is to say that the kingdom of heaven is like leaven because it's telling us leaven has a power of permeation or a power to spread and overtake whatever it is put into. And so the warning I give you is don't see something in a passage and say, oh, it means that here, so it has to mean that here. Because you will miss what, the Bible is saying if we do that here and what we're saying is in verse 33, the kingdom of heaven is like evil that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all even evil, all evil. If we put that in then we're saying to God, your kingdom is evil. That's not what we're going to do here today. So don't jump to conclusions about absolutizing or super spiritualizing things. We don't do that when we read the word of God. Something else we may also observe about this parable is it assumes an integral of time. You'll notice the seed is planted and has time to grow into a tree that the birds of the air are coming and nesting in. The leaven is hidden and it has time to permeate and spread to the whole measures of meal. So there's an an assumption of an integral of time here in these parables. Even though it isn't said, the mustard seed is planted and in six months, It's become a tree. It doesn't give us the time, the time frame, but it does assume a passing of time. One final observation I want to make is commenting on the mustard seed. Now, anybody who knows anything about botany in 2015 knows the mustard seed is not the smallest seed. But Jesus says it is. So Jesus must be wrong. And I'll tell you from experience, talking with Muslims who know their stuff will take you to this verse and say, See, the Bible is wrong right there. So either Jesus is a liar or the Bible has been corrupt by man, and you have to deal with one of those points. Now, Jesus is not wrong. I'll give you two reasons why. First of all, and some guys will disagree with me on this, but first of all, historically and biblically, Jesus is speaking proverbially here. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds. During that time, the Jewish world and the Roman Greco world recognized The proverbial smallness of a mustard seed. What does Jesus say later in the Gospel of Matthew? If you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, it's comparing it to what they would say, this is the smallest seed we have. So if your faith is that small, or in Jesus' mind, if something that small is planted and it grows into a bush, look at the difference in it. So Jesus is speaking proverbially here. Also, Jesus is speaking technically. Now this this is where it gets difficult to see here. If you'll notice in verse 32, Jesus says, it is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants. So Jesus classifies it here in the herb family, the herb category. And when we're talking about herbs that are planted, the mustard seed, absolute smallest, that someone would plant in their garden. Now, in modern America, we plant something that is smaller called tobacco. But I've never seen anybody have a small tobacco garden off their back porch. And so this is what Jesus is speaking about here. He says, these small garden herbs that you grow at your house, that you live off of, that you cook with, that you eat, the mustard seed is the smallest one. Now, the point of this message is not to prove the accuracy of Jesus speaking about the mustard seed, so we're going to move on. If you want to read some in-depth stuff about it, I refer you to a guy named John A. Spruill thinks how you say his name. He has an article called The Problem of the Mustard Seed in which he addresses this very technically, much more technically than I have. The point in me mentioning it is to say Jesus is absolutely right. You can trust the confidence of the word of God and trust Jesus. Now, those are our observations. A lot of them, but keep them in mind as we move into the interpretation. So we're going to see the parable interpretation. We know just from reading it that it assumes all of these things. So we can infer from that This parable is teaching us about kingdom growth. That's the purpose of this parable, and that's the interpretation. I want to read it to you again and just listen. Kingdom growth in your mind. Listen to what it says. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leaven. Notice again that it says the kingdom of heaven is like mustard seed planted, leaven hidden. So it's telling us that the kingdom of heaven initially is something that is hidden, can't be seen, obscure. When you plant a seed, you can't walk by. Somebody who doesn't know what you planted can't walk by and look at the ground and say, oh, you planted a rose bush here. There's no evidence of that. So this is what Jesus is saying. The kingdom is like a seed planted. It's like leaven hidden. And the reason this is important is because as it relates to these Jewish expectations, they're expecting the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard bush. kingdom of heaven is like all leavened meal. Jesus said, no, it isn't. It's something hidden. And we've also seen this idea in Matthew chapter 13 so far that the kingdom is basically defiling expectations that the Jews had. And that's what's happening here. The kingdom is going to be something that is going to grow. And the evidence of the kingdom is only going to come with time. It's going to grow. It should seem strange to us to think about the kingdom of God as we've defined it in this big long book that we've talked about twice. (laughs) The kingdom of God is something that grows. Think about that. The kingdom of God is something that grows. So let this occupy your mind for a moment. I'm going to look down a lot here because I want to read exactly what this says. This is how we need to understand it, especially in the context of what Jesus is saying here. The kingdom of God is in God's mind and eternal reality since God is the sovereign Lord of all. We see here in this chapter, Matthew chapter 13, verse 35, Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament and he says, this, is what, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. What parables is Jesus talking about? Parables of the kingdom. And they, this stuff about the kingdom has been hidden since the foundation of the world. So this isn't something man's sin and God's like, okay, I need to switch the kingdom up. That's not what happened. The kingdom is an eternal reality in God's mind. Again, in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is telling another parable, and this is what he says. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So not only was the kingdom a, a reality in God's mind, but the kingdom was prepared. From eternity past. But the kingdom is an eternal reality. So how is the kingdom growing then? The way we have to understand kingdom growth is in relation to the progressive consummation of all things under the righteous, redemptive reign of God through Jesus Christ. Especially in the hearts of his people. And one day it's going to lead to the consummation of all things. And this is possible. It's really cool. Me and Paul were talking about this last night. This is possible possible because even though eternity exists outside of time, there is still a chronological unfolding of events that take place. So some people try to explain philosophically that God exists at all times, in all places, in all situations at the same time. But for us, the way we experience eternity is in chronological order. So right now, even though we live in the bounds of time, we are living in eternity. All of us right now living in eternity. So our eternity started the moment we were born for us. The reality of our eternity started the moment we were born. In God's mind, the reality of our eternity started as soon as God decided it would start. Eternal reality, as eternal as God. The same thing with the kingdom. Even though Jesus came and said the kingdom of heaven is here, in God's mind, it's an eternal reality. So the kingdom is here, yet the kingdom is coming. That doesn't affect the eternal reality of the kingdom. And this will happen because the kingdom is growing and it is permeating all things. So in this parable, the first step of our interpretation is that the mustard seed planted and the leaven hidden represent the kingdom now. The mustard bush grown where the birds are coming to nest in its branches and the full leavened meal represent the coming kingdom, future, two-stage kingdom. Now, we need to be really careful here Because we do not affirm a post-millennial, Christian triumphant, Christian world takeover theme in the Bible. We don't see that. And if that's not the case, then how can Jesus say the kingdom is growing? Well, I'm going to tell you. The reason we don't believe this are these verses from the Bible. Notice 2 Timothy 3.1. I think it's going to be on the screen. The Apostle Paul says, But understand this, that in the last days there will become times of difficulty. 2 Timothy 4. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Teachers who say, the mother's choice, what she does with with the baby in her womb. Teachers who say, well, I can't be against love because God is love, so however you need to express your love, if that's in a same-sex relationship, then you should do that. Preachers who would take the step to say, we're an affirming church, and that no longer means that we examine you and search your spiritual gifts and affirm that in you, but we affirm same-sex marriages in our church. This is what the Apostle Paul said was coming. He says, these teachers will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Matthew 24, especially this passage in Matthew 24, as it relates to eschatological revelation, the end of the age, this is what Jesus has to say. And he sat down on the Mount of Olives, and the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Here we go. Okay, this is the perfect opportunity for Jesus to say, this is what's going to happen. The gospel is going to spread everywhere. Everybody's going to believe, and when everybody believes, I'm going to come back, and my kingdom is going to be ready for me. You guys do the work, and I'll come back, and the kingdom will be ready. Perfect opportunity. Let's see if that's what he has to say. Jesus answered them. See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. They will lead many astray, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of these are but the beginnings of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. Then the end will come. I don't see a triumphant Christian takeover in that passage. It isn't there. What I see is persecution, death, betrayal, hatred. Martyrdom. This is what I see in this passage, and this is what Jesus said is going to happen. So if this is where the kingdom is growing to, how can we say the kingdom is growing? What we want to make sure, the reason we define the kingdom this way, because the kingdom is growing now, presently, in the hearts of God's people. And that's what we want to see. As we read these next verses, keep in mind that definition of the kingdom and tell me if you can see the point I'm trying to make. Keep, those, keep that definition of the kingdom, the sovereign, redemptive rule and reign of God through Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit in the hearts of his people for his own glory and purposes. Keep that in mind as I read these verses to you. Philippians 1.6. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, he who planted a mustard seed in you, he who hid leaven in you, will be, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. Matthew 24, 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Matthew 28, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What's the theme here in these verses? Kingdom advancement in the heart of God's people. The reason these last two are significant about the gospel going to the nations, as Paul mentioned when he was praying, Revelation tells us to look forward and see the throne of God where every people, every tribe, Every language, every nation is there saying salvation belongs to our God. The people we prayed for, the unreached people this morning, one day when the kingdom is realized, there will be people from that group standing at the throne saying salvation belongs to our God. So the theme of all of these verses fit our context perfectly because they point to the end of the age. Notice those phrases that we read. The end of the age, the day of Christ, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The end. So here's how kingdom growth takes place in the heart of God's people. We learned last week, as we talked about the reality of the sons of the evil one living in the kingdom, we learned that even though Satan is defeated, he still resists. And Satan is defeated. Colossians 2 says that he, talking about God, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Jesus. So Satan and his foes have been triumphed over. In Ephesians 1, we read that Jesus has been seated in the heavenly places at the right hand of God, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, is Lucifer a name that is named in this age? Yes, Jesus is seated above him. He has authority over him. So even though Jesus has this authority over him and over the forces of evil, they still resist, and we still battle against the flesh and against evil. However. All authority is Jesus' and because all authority is Jesus's, he is advancing the kingdom in the hearts of his people, the elect, by gathering them in, by sanctifying them, and by leading to their glorification. So now when we look for kingdom growth, we don't look out there, we look in here, not even in here, but in here. This is where kingdom growth is happening right now. So when the seed is grown to be greater than all the other garden plants, when that little bit of leaven has leavened the whole meal, when God has accomplished all of his work and gathered into one all of his people from Pontata Ethnos or Pontata Ethne, all the people, then the end will come. That's what Jesus is trying to tell us here. So the point, all of that to say this, the point is even though the kingdom failed to meet Jewish expectations of being immediate, Jesus would say to them, not coming in world domination. That's not the point. The kingdom is coming to grow in the hearts of my people. And it's going to be obscure. It's going to be insignificant. You take a mustard seed and it's small and you try to see how small it is. It looks pretty small, but you know what makes it even more insignificant? Buried in the ground. Then you can't see it at all. You have some leaven left over from your last meal of leavened bread. You have that in your hand, and it looks pretty small. Mix it into three measures of meal, which I learned is enough meal to feed anywhere from 100 to 150 people. That's a lot of bread. You take that little bit of leaven, and you mix it all in with that flour. You can't see it at all anymore. Obscure, insignificant. So a baby comes and is born in a manger in a stable, manure up to his parents' ankles around the barn animals, and nobody knows. Obscure. 30 years later, he comes on the scene and somebody says, here's the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Thousands of people hear that. Two people come. Obscure, insignificant. By the end of his ministry, he had gathered 12 people. One of them sold him into slavery. The other 10 left, and only one is there as he's hanging naked on the cross. Obscure, insignificant. Three days later, 120 of them who have gotten strong enough to come back and gather together are hiding in an upper room with the door locked, afraid for their lives. Obscure, insignificant, planted in the ground, hidden in the measures of meal. But what he says is this kingdom will grow. It will grow. The kingdom will spread. It will permeate all things. My people will come. That's what Jesus is trying to say here. So... What does that have to do with us? Parable application. What does this mean for us? First thing this means for us is it gives us hope in personal kingdom growth. Remember we said the kingdom is growing here, not out there. We're not going to look and say, oh, our president's a Christian. He's going to put end abortion and end same-sex marriage, and America's going to be God's flagship for the end of time. Not what's going to happen. The point here is personal kingdom growth. This is why it makes sense. Because as citizens of the kingdom, if the kingdom is growing, we are growing. That's what it means. Listen to these verses again. Philippians 1, 6. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The apostle Paul is writing with surety. I'm absolutely sure that the one who planted the mustard seed in you is going to let it grow, and it's going to be complete on the day of Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5, again. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Do any of you feel sanctified completely? How many of you sin this week? So we're not sanctified completely. The apostle Paul's praying for that here. May he sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit, your whole soul, your whole body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a strong prayer. This is what I pray for you guys. This is what I pray for myself, what I pray for my family. But then he doesn't leave it without hope. He says this, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Again, speaks with surety. I'm sure, absolutely sure God is going to do it. These verses make the impact of this progressive, permeating kingdom very personal and very strong, very hopeful. The kingdom is growing. We are growing. So there's an assurance, a hopeful expectation as the Jews looked at Jesus and said, this is what we're expecting of the kingdom and we're hoping it's coming. You ask any Jew today who doesn't follow Jesus, you know what they're going to say? Messiah is going to come. No matter how long they wait, he's coming. The Jews in exile, you know what they were praying in the Old Testament? is going to come. God's going to ransom his people. They had hopeful expectation. And we have on this side the complete revelation of who Jesus is, complete revelation of the kingdom nature so we can have personal kingdom growth with hope. Second, there's hope in evangelism. Since the kingdom will advance and grow in the hearts of God's people, we can evangelize with great confidence, because we know that the soil of the understanding heart will receive the word, will understand it, and will bear fruit. We know that the the wheat will grow up, it will bear grain, it will be harvested, and it will be put into the master's barn. We know the mustard seed will grow, the leaven will permeate, and everything will happen just like God wants it to happen. This is what Jesus says in John chapter 10, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. In other words, we go to evangelize. We're not trying to make sheep. We're trying to find them. And this takes all the frustration away. So I have people ask me, I had somebody ask me this week, how can you, as a Reformed Baptist, hold to the doctrines of grace, Calvinism as you want to call it, they want to call it, how can you hope to have any effect when you share the gospel with people? How can you hope for them to be born again? Since you believe God's already chosen their destiny, what's the point? Why are you going to go share the gospel with people? If God's called him and not him, why are you going to share with him? It doesn't matter. The first way I responded to that is how can you not go out with that mindset? That's what I said. I said, I respond to that with hope. Because I can share the gospel with hope knowing that Jesus promised all of his sheep will come so God has already done the work. This is hopeful to me. I can share the gospel trusting God to work, God to draw, God to plant the seeds, God to cultivate the soil, God to cause the mustard plant to go grow, God to cause the leaven to spread, and I can go out and literally not do any of the work. Because when the Spirit works through me and shares the word, God makes it grow or God makes it harden. And that's hope for me, because I don't have to trust my powers of persuasion. I'm not going out convincing anybody to follow Jesus. God's doing that. And I guarantee you, God's a lot better at persuading people than I am. Hope in evangelism. Third application for us. This understanding of the kingdom and of kingdom growth gives us the proper perspective we need to pray for and seek the kingdom. Now, before I started coming here, I'm pretty sure you guys went through the Lord's Prayer And this is what Jesus told them to pray. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If you know anything about the way grammar and syntax and punctuation work, you know that the comma between kingdom come and your will be done means Jesus is talking about the exact same thing. So Jesus could take out your kingdom come and just say your will be done, same meaning. Or he could take the other one out, same meaning but he puts them both together so that we can know that it is God's will for the kingdom to come. And we pray for that kingdom to come. And this this really helps us. Notice the two-stage kingdom here. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Here's a two-stage kingdom existing now. There's a kingdom in heaven where God's will is being done perfectly, righteously, sinlessly. And we pray for that kingdom and that will to be done here, that's why, why we can be able to say, amen, come Lord Jesus, because we want the kingdom of God to come. According to Romans chapter eight, we should be groaning with eager anticipation with all of creation, waiting for the sons of God, or we could say the sons of the kingdom to be revealed. We should be groaning and anticipating that. How many of us this week prayed, God, let your kingdom come. Let it all be done tomorrow. Let your kingdom come. If we have no desire for the kingdom of God to come, then I can tell you that you are not delighting in being a citizen of that kingdom now. And if you have no desire for the future consummation, fully complete kingdom to come, then you are not growing as a citizen of the kingdom right now. This is why we're told to pray like this, told to do these things. Listen, Matthew chapter 6. Jesus says, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first, what's the word? Kingdom. Kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Seek the kingdom. Strive for the kingdom. Seek the righteousness of God. Strive for the growth of the kingdom, because you can do so with confidence knowing that when you pray, let your kingdom come, let your will be done. This is a prayer that's already answered. So we pray it with confidence. We seek it with confidence, and we can say, you who began a good work in me will bring it to completion. I want to seek the kingdom. You began that work in me. You're going to bring it to, to completion. I'm seeking the kingdom. And when people say, why would you do this? Why would you leave your family, move to another country, live off of money that you don't even know that's coming in, and you have kids to raise, why would you do that? Because I'm seeking the kingdom. Seeking the kingdom. Why would you get up at 3 a.m. every morning and go to work and work half a day, then come home, spend the rest of your day trying to pastor a church? Because I'm seeking the kingdom. Why would you be willing to go to a church where people think we're off our rocker, leave the the church of the county and come here? Because I'm seeking the kingdom. Why would you sell everything you have and go to Cambodia for a year, so I'm seeking the kingdom. It's not going to make sense to those out there because kingdom growth happens in here. And this idea of kingdom growth gives us the perspective we need to pursue it, to seek it. So seek the kingdom. There's a ton more areas of application. I'm going to give you one more because I think this next one really gives us what we need to understand the reality of kingdom growth so that it can come to bear on our hearts and minds. We're going to look at this passage in Hebrews chapter 12. I think it's going to be on the, on the screen says, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Verse 24 tells us that Jesus is speaking. Verse 24 he makes a comparison between the blood of Jesus and the blood of Abel. He says the blood of Jesus, because it was more innocent than that of Abel, is screaming out more strongly. So the blood of Jesus is what is speaking here. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth. But now he is promised... fire according to this passage the voice of god is going to one day shake the cosmos with vindicative judgment destroy it all judge it all in order that the kingdom can be displayed as something that cannot be shaken so the judgment of all things has a purpose namely to show us the kingdom is perfect to show us the kingdom cannot be shaken We belong to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And since we belong to this kingdom, there's a call for us here in these verses. There's a call, a command for us. The first thing here, the call is to be grateful. He says, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. This is not something we asked for. It didn't say, therefore, let us be grateful for accepting our invitation to come to the kingdom that cannot be shaken. It didn't say, therefore, let us be grateful for walking by and picking up one of the free tickets to the kingdom that cannot be shaken. It said, let us be grateful for receiving. It was given to me because a gift is the only appropriate means for gratitude. If you give me something, you don't thank me. I thank you. That's how gift giving works. And so he says, be grateful grateful because God has bestowed on you a kingdom that cannot be shaken second thing the second call in this passage is to offer to God acceptable worship how do we do this what is acceptable worship soon as I read this I went in my mind to Romans chapter 12 says this I appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God same language there Acceptable worship, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So what do we do? We present our bodies as living sacrifice. Would you consider your life right now, your hobbies, your interests, your attitudes, your intentions, your conversations, your actions, your thoughts, as a living sacrifice to God. If not, you're not living a life of acceptable worship. That simple. We want to worship God. We want to worship him in spirit and in truth. Give yourself as a living sacrifice. When God says, hey, leave your family and go do this, you say, okay, I'll go do it. When God says, hey, quit your job and do this, okay, I'll, go, I'll do it. Care what anybody thinks? My body's a living sacrifice. The next thing we see, the next call here, is that this worship is to be offered with reverence, and awe. The words here in the Greek are dilos and eulabia, and both of these words are used in the sense of fear. So literally, if we want to translate this as, as plainly as it can, it would read like this. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with fear and fear. Fear and fear. What do you think it means to fear God? Now here's something I want to be really, really cautious about. The idea here is Is not that we come trembling before God, afraid that he's going to destroy us. Because 1 John 4 tells us, whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So the book of Galatians says that we come to God with boldness and access, with confidence through our faith in Jesus. So this is what I think the, the, the apostle who wrote the book of Hebrews is getting at here. We come with reverent caution, where we would get our idea of godly piety We are not fearful of God, but we are fearful of our misplaced desires to worship everything but God. And so with our worship, we are continually examining ourselves fearfully because we don't want to worship God in the wrong way. We don't want to worship things other than God. And this is what it means to worship God with acceptable worship, with reverence and awe. So here's the question. The question gets to the heart of our motives, and our objects of worship. Have you ever, and if you haven't ever, the goal is to be doing this continually, daily. Have you ever examined your life with reverent, awestruck fear that your worship may be misplaced? You know, you can worship God wrongly. You can come here and worship the Word of God wrongly. You can worship the teachings of the Reformation Wrongly, you can make an idol out of Calvinism, you can make an idol out of reading and theology, you can worship preaching, you can worship singing, you can worship your spouse. You examine your life and say, God alone deserves to be worshiped, He should be worshiped by the sacrifice of my body. This has to go. That's the way we worship God fearfully. Lest you think this is burdensome. We learned several weeks ago the commands of God are not burdensome. Let this sink in. Romans fourteen seven. The Apostle Paul is addressing legalism here. People are, some people are saying, shouldn't eat this, shouldn't drink that. Some people are saying, I'm freeing God to do whatever I want. They're arguing about it. That's what the Apostle Paul's summation is. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. This is progressive. Righteousness, we want to worship with reverence and awe. Peace, fully, completely satisfied, knowing we are worshiping in the right way. And then what comes? Joy in the Holy Spirit. You want to know what the kingdom of God is? You feel joyful. You have joy in the Holy Spirit. Not joy in all these other things. Joy in the Holy Spirit. This is the immediate personal effect of kingdom growth in your life. The kingdom is growing within the world. It's growing within the church. It's growing within you. And it is one of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Praise God. Praise God that the kingdom is growing. Praise God that the end for which God purposed the kingdom will be accomplished. When the guy goes out and sows his mustard seed, he didn't expect an apple tree to grow. When the woman hid the measures of leaven in the flour, when she hid it in there, she didn't expect to come back in a week and find unleavened bread. He had a purpose that she'd done it for. He had a purpose that he planted the tree for, and that's the end which came about. God has a purpose for which he began the kingdom, and that purpose will come about. We belong to a kingdom that is utterly purposeful, utterly purposeful, utterly deterministic, and absolute. Because of that, we should worship God with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray.